Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I am a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business, where I am the founding director of the Product Management Center, which is a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. And I'm joined every week here. We have this podcast, How to Succeed in Product Management. And I'm joined by several of the advisory board members who help us achieve our dream of developing a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. The people who are here every single week and who actually made it all possible is Red. And so, Red, can you tell people a little bit about yourself what that red circle means up there, and you're going to interact this show. What's your role today? Absolutely. Well, for one, everyone who's listening in has a chance to be a rock star, just like us on stage, because we're recording this in case you have to leave, and we're going to have an opportunity where you can come up on stage and ask questions. Now, Jeff, one thing that's really super cool is if you're shy or feel like you are uncomfortable getting on stage or you just can't, we also have a Slack group with over 600 product managers that if you want to ask a question, we'll ask it on your behalf. Jeff, if you could send me a link, I could just go ahead and invite people. So if you're someone who wants to get into this Slack group, just back channel me, hit me up on Twitter, fax me. I don't care. Carrier pigeons are cool too. We will let you in so you can be part of the community. That's pretty much it. So stay tuned for an invite up on stage if you have questions or more. And I look forward to seeing you all in the uh, product management Slack group. And if there are other PMs here that you think would benefit, click that plus sign at the bottom and invite them. I'm really excited about this conversation because Vishal and Tatiana are going to share so much knowledge. I'll be listening in more than actually talking today. Over to you, Jeff. Yes, our moment of the lack of unmute button. It wouldn't be an online conversation without somebody who cannot use the mute button. And I couldn't figure out the mute button because I was lamenting that Sumeya is saying that we're not going to hear from her as much this week because every week, Sumeya Benganam offers some valuable insights, brilliant insights, time and time again. But we'll get to her, our resident product expert and practitioner in residence in just a moment. But first, I want to introduce my good friend and neighbor, Vishal. Vishal, can you tell us a little bit about your journey in product? Hey, Jeff. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me over here. Excited to be a part of the discussion. Yeah, right now, currently I'm EVP of North America product team here at a company called Remitly. Been in the product field for about 20 years now. I started my journey um, as a product manager at Microsoft. Uh, I spent over a decade uh, working on all kinds of things. I was worked on building operating systems, building mobile services, and in the end, I was building uh, Windows Phone and a bunch of mobile experiences for Windows Phone. Uh, after having spent about a decade over there, uh, you know, I was at a point where either I could be there 
forever because Microsoft is such a great place that it, it, it pulls you in. And I decided that I wanted to go experience do something else. And I joined uh, Groupon because I really, really loved, enjoyed travel. And Groupon was looking for somebody you know, wanted to build mobile experiences for the travel business. Uh, so I went there and learned e-commerce and spent about five years building B2B, B2C experiences and uh, really having a ball and learning all about e-commerce. And then the last year I was at a B2B startup, B2B company rather in Seattle called Payscale. We were building SaaS solutions for, for HR leaders to figure out how to call, how to pay their employees fairly. And for the past few months, I've been had the privilege of uh, working at another local startup called Remitly. And uh, so far, it's just been a ball over here. It's uh, it's a really fa- fast-paced, high-growth uh, place. And I'm, I'm learning a lot of fintech stuff. So that's my journey, Jeff. All right. Thanks for sharing your journey. Great to have you. For those who missed it, as I covered it very quickly, we've got two senior executives in product here, plus our ever-brilliant Sumeya. And we are talking about scaling product organizations and developing a culture that could help you as you scale. And so we're now also joined by Tatiana. Tatiana, do you mind sharing a little bit about your journey in product? Hi, I, I can you all hear me? I'm having some audio issues here. <laughs> I could hear you. And I and you great. missed uh, I had plenty of audio issues myself <laughs> and I do every oh, okay, week. Okay. But we hear you. Okay, great. Okay. So hello everyone. My name is Tatiana Mahmood. I'm um, SVP of uh, new products at Pendo, which is an awesome uh, platform to help uh, software and technology leaders like ourselves understand the analytics behind uh, the products that we're building and, and getting our you know users to love our products more. Before that, I was the chief product officer at Nextdoor, really helping to lead the kind of evolution of the, the product overall and help build the neighborhood vitality sort of pillar around the product to really kind of create a better engagement platform and a, a better platform for people to engage as a community and online to offline interactions. Um, I've also worked at AWS to help build Honeycode as a, as a senior executive there, uh, created the vision for Honeycode, wrote the first PRFAQ, and got the funding to, to build the team and the product. Um, before that, I was at Salesforce, uh, building the IoT cloud, as well as leading the Lightning Experience redesign. So a lot of you know, product innovation is sort of what I do, what I'm driven by. And, you know, one of the reasons why is because I have a PhD in anthropology, which sometimes seems weird to people, but I just love how, you know, technology is really reshaping how we work as uh, human beings, how our culture functions, um, how we interact with each other. And that's really important to me um, to really think about the human side of product development and product innovation. So that's a little bit of my journey. All right. Welcome. And thank you for sharing your journey. I think this is helpful for people to, for the aspiring product managers in the group to kind of see that there are multiple paths into product and great story there. And so today we have two senior executives as our guests, uh, and we're going to talk about scaling product organizations and developing culture that will help you do so. Sumeya, why is this an important topic for even aspiring PMs or people who have just been doing it for a while that are not yet worried about scaling product organizations? Well, Jeff, I think one of the reasons you highlighted, and that's truly the diversity and the lack of templates that will fit every single situation. I think as we start talking about scaling, what works in one place might not work in another. However, I think there are some fundamental people aspects and you know how to create generative culture, a healthy culture that will continue to be consistent. So I'm excited to have that part of the conversation. I think for a product manager, 
who might be an aspiring one or early in their career, listening to leaders like Tatiana and Vishal talk about scaling and talk about the things they worry about and the things they want to make happen in their organizations won't just be inspiring, but also provide guidance around things that they should be thinking about as they grow in their careers. All right. Thank you, Samaya. That is your superpower of always explaining why people need to know what we're ready to tell them. And we carefully choose these topics and the panelists to try to help all product managers and aspiring product managers take their career to the next level. Speaking of taking your career to the next level, I want to talk about taking your product organization to the next level. So Vishal, I want to start with you. What are some of the challenges that come with scaling a product organization? So why is it important for us to talk about how to do it? What are some of the challenges that you face as you're trying to? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think I've found that, you know, I've worked in small organizations, large organizations, and it's really easy to, I would say, it's relatively easy when you're a small small team, you know, a couple of people, you know, working together and because decisions can be made easily, you can get together in a room, you know, hash things out very quickly. As you grow and you have a larger team, the communication aspect and making sure everyone's working together is so critical uh, that many teams don't succeed because they aren't able to create, like replicate the same thing that they were able to do as a small team as they grow into a larger organization. And so getting that framework right, making sure you're structured well is really critical as you you know scale from, or invariably, if you're successful, you're going to scale from a smaller organization to a larger organization. And so as, especially as aspiring product leaders, as people get there, understanding that what worked as a smaller organization isn't going to necessarily work as a larger organization is critical to internalize. And then make sure that you're thinking about how are things going to work when you are in this larger organization. Yeah, I would just follow up on that, which is, I worked for a while in IDEO's organizational design practice. In fact, I actually founded the practice and working with a lot of organizations in in order to redesign the culture and in particular redesign cultures to be more innovative. But one of the things I did was I worked with a group of professors, one of whom was Bob Sutton at the Stanford GSB. He wrote the book Scaling Up Excellence, which is a very good book on scaling. And there are, you know, when we look at growth in tech companies, we often see in our decks, in our VC decks, we see kind of a a graph that's like up and to the right. But that's not actually how organizations scale. And that's not how they see success. what, What it actually looks like is a series of bumps. When you see fast growth and then you see kind of the effectiveness or the growth starting to decelerate. And it is fairly reliably consistent at certain points in an organization's scaling. So the first one is at around 40 employees, uh, which is around the time when I think, as Vishal mentioned, you know, when you start off as a small team, you're all kind of working together. You're all on the same page. You're usually pre-COVID. You would a lot of times be in the same room. Right. So the founder could just stand up and say like, hey, you know, who's working on this? What's going on? Let's all get together around a whiteboard, right? It's, it's very organic. It's very kind of close and intimate and everybody's together in that same room. Then you get past 40 people and you need to start doing things like having roles and functions and actual jobs, right? As opposed to just being like, here's the big organizational challenge. We're all going to tackle it together. And between 40 and around 150, 
the still the CEO can manage through relationships, right? Because you can, you know, he or she can still keep the people who are at the company in their minds and know what each individual is good at, right? So if there's a particular challenge, yes, somebody has a role or somebody has a particular job, but the CEO knows who to go to when a new challenge comes up, right? Or when something new comes up. And around 150, and this is around Dunbar's number. So if you, you know, look up, you know, Dunbar's number, it's about 140, 150. That's when that kind of managing a startup or managing a team through relationships and knowing who's good at what starts to fail because we can't really keep a number of relationships over 150 in an individual person's head. And at that point, we need to start really kind of getting to an operational, like true business culture, right? And we need to figure out, you know, what are the management processes? What are the kind of HR systems? What are the different ways in which different teams interact with each other? What are the interfaces between different teams? What are the mechanisms, right, for them to communicate and report both, you know, to each other laterally as well as up and down the organization, right? You need to start designing all of that. And then around 700 people, and this is a little bit more fluid between 500 and 1,000, but generally around 700, certainly in my experience, it's around 700, you get to a completely different inflection point, which is an enterprise level inflection point when you have to redesign the culture. And that's often, especially in my advising tech companies and my experience as an operator, frankly, uh, working with a company, a couple of companies that went through this inflection point, that's when you actually have to think about kind of reorganizing from a functional model to more potentially a GM model or really understanding how to manage the business, especially if there are different product lines or different customer sets or different markets that you're serving in a completely different way. So redesigning the culture is a really important function of CEOs and business leaders and product leaders, not just the HR team, right? Because the ability for your product to succeed and ability to formulate a great product strategy really depends on how you organize the company and how you build a culture, right, around setting goals and communicating with each other. I love how we started by talking about product teams. At least the question was really focused on that. And then Tatiana, you brought this back to the whole organization. I have a clarifying question. Can you effectively scale product teams without doing that within the context of what's going on within the larger organization without working closely with your engineering peers and design peers, et cetera? Vishal and Tatiana would love your thoughts there. Yeah, my experience has been no. I think it's it all, it is a joint. You have to think about it holistically. There are, especially as I've worked in the past where my engineering teams, design teams, product teams have been really closely knit together. The way you scale up and think about your product team is, is really not just your product management thing, but you're thinking about building the product holistically, which involves your you know, analytics team, your engineering team, your design team, and, and, and all of it together. Uh, so my experience has been, you really, as, as Tatiana mentioned, like you really think about it holistically. There are certain tips and tricks I have from pure product perspective, but I just like Tatiana, think about it. What does the organization need at this point? And product, especially in tech-led companies, is the key part of the organization in some ways. Yeah, and remember that as people are experiencing, as customers are experiencing your company, right? They're not experiencing the product piece or the design piece or the engineering piece or the marketing piece, right? They're experiencing one thing. And I think one of the things that really helps us in both organizing and scaling 
is to always orient toward the holistic customer experience and keep stay oriented to the customer, regardless of the internal dynamics or organizational struggles that we're all that we're going through. Right. And so how do we orient to what is the customer experiencing and formulate our culture, our organizational design, right, how we're organized, but also our mechanisms. What are the processes within our organization and how does that support the customer experience? And I want to dial back a little bit. So Tatiana and Vishal gave some great explanation of the challenges of scaling product orgs and when you realize those challenges. And I'm curious what somebody who's listening right now might either be getting into product management or they might have been in it for several years. What should they be paying attention to now if they aspire to eventually get into a position to scale the product org and make those decisions that we're going to cover in a little bit about the best practices? But what should somebody be paying attention to in their early days of their career that will help them do what you've done, scaling product orgs? So I think one of the things that sometimes, you know, younger people in their careers, and it's no fault to them at all, but they're not really thinking about the organizational structure. And especially when a reorg happens to really, um, there's, that's an incredible opportunity to just examine what are the problems, right, that the business was seeing and why was the reorg a solution or a really important solution to the problems um, of scaling the organization. So being really attuned to sort of how are the teams organized, what problems was this particular organizational structure meant to solve? What problems is it creating? People always focus on the problems that a particular organizational culture is creating, but it was created for a reason. It was created to solve some problems that existed before that. So if you can understand that, you can better empathize with the goals that people, you know, your leadership wants you to achieve, right? Because they've organized the organization in a particular way. And then look at the mechanisms, right? What are the communication mechanisms? What are the reporting mechanisms that have been set up around your organization and why are those important and which ones are really important and which ones are not really important, right? To help you prioritize where you spend your time. And Vishal, anything to add to that? What somebody in the early in their career could be paying attention to? Yeah, I'd plus one to what Tatiana said. In your early career, you are not the owner of how the org is structured, right? You are, you know, that is something that leaders higher up in the organization will decide. You you definitely are somebody who should be offering your inputs. But I think the best you can do is really learn and figure out what is what works, what doesn't work. I'll say like having through my career, I've gone through several reorgs and not all of them are done well. Uh, I think it's always a opportunity to learn what worked in a particular structure, what didn't. And that will help you as you invariably will get to the place where you will create your own structures to figure out how to do that effectively. And especially for somebody who is getting to that level, I think it really is thinking through whether you are effectively, what is like a size is an important thing, as as, uh, Tatiana mentioned earlier, is like, what is the size of your organization right now? And is it a time for you to think, rethink, especially if things, there are certain barriers that you're facing, especially around how things are getting done and whether communication structures are working or not. And if that's happening, that might be thing for you to think about what are you scaling your team and your organization well or not. 
And there's so much to unpack here with scaling product organizations because you have the processes you have, the reporting mechanisms, you have whether you allow teams to do kind of the same work, repetitive work and see the best team wins or whether you all kind of feed into one. I'm curious uh, what dimensions you want to take this, Vishal, since you're unmuted. What are some best practices? What are some things that you see as helping to scale a product? I'll give you my experience, like what I have done and what has worked for me in the past. To me, when I have got into a place where I need to create a larger, larger product team. I'll focus on product, larger product team from, you know, starting from scratch and like building out a bigger team. What I focus on are a few things. Number one is to me, making sure that the right people are in the organization is, is critical. Like you have an idea of what kind of people you want, what is the problem you need to solve. Second is I think having to me more important than anything else is the trust between those teams, those people, individuals, if you will, and making sure that they know that you are going to win and lose as a team. If there isn't trust, then your team is just not going to be successful. So getting the right people, building the right trusted, trusting relationships between them, then comes a common vision and purpose. So often I've seen where teams don't work scale is where everyone has a different idea of what needs to be accomplished. So really articulating you as a leader, articulating what is the vision, what is the purpose of this team, and like repeating it ad nauseum to make sure that everyone is aligned on that. Then I think the next piece I think is really critical is creating the right organizational structure. And here means how I believe in each of the parts of your product org or even any organization really should have a very clear success metric. Like what part of you look at the vision and purpose, what piece of the puzzle am I solving? And am I able to independently hit those success metrics or not while working with my peers, of course, but creating that structure in a way that people have that independence autonomy to go hit those metrics. And then honestly, getting out of the way. Uh, I think the only way you can scale really large organizations if you are not micromanaging and you if you have if you've gotten the right person people if created the right structure they have the right vision then you shouldn't be in the way so that's how i have approached and i've found success tatiana anything to add to that yeah i mean i would completely agree um and plus one everything vishal said um, i'll give a little example so when i joined aws i was brought in by a very senior vp who reported to andy jassy and, you know, he and I kind of started the team and, and, you know, we had to grow it from two to 150 in about 18 months, which was a lot of growth. And really, I would say one of the experiences that we had was very clear documents around the vision, because I think Vishal really talked about clarity of vision, clarity of purpose, and being able to onboard a lot of people who are coming on very quickly so that everybody's hearing the same version is incredibly important. So, you know, I do that through documents a lot, writing out PRFAQs, writing presentations with, you know, experience with mock-ups, right, of what the future experience will be. And, you know, that is really, really helpful to get every new person who's coming in to have the same destination in mind, right? So it's very hard, right, to be the captain of a big ship, you know, if, half of your crew members are brand new and they have no idea where they're supposed to be going, <laughs> right? And they're waiting for the next meeting for you to tell them where they're supposed to be going, right? In their onboarding materials, they should have those documents. They should be encouraged in their first one-on-one -on -one with their manager to talk about those documents, talk about the vision that they've read about. 
Yes, I just had a couple of things I wanted to add. And this is something I see happen in startups a lot, which is this fear of removing things. <laughs> so when we're scaling, one of the most insidious and really the, one of the hardest things to do is the, the subtraction piece. And that applies to both process and people. And I come from at this from a place of empathy completely with the understanding also that everything around psychological safety and impact and meaning and everything that really matters in creating a high-performing team exists, then if we have that uh, as a baseline, then beyond that, we want to look at are people the right fit? And the fact that they have been in the organization when it was at one scale and they were highly effective are they going to be effective in the next one? And what does it take to make them effective at this next scale that we're going at? And if what it takes to make them effective is not something that the organization can do or they're not the right fit for, then what are the other options available to us? So the word subtract sounds so <laughs> clinical, but there is an element of subtraction a lot of times that has to happen when scaling. All right, great point. And now for those just joining us, I'm Jeff Schulman, and I'm a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business. We're recording this conversation as a podcast and doing this as part of the Product Management Center at the University of Washington, which aims to enrich the lives of product managers, uh, diverse product managers from all backgrounds. And we're talking scaling product orgs and we'll talk culture. And I have a ton of questions. I know Sumeya has a ton of questions and insights to share as well. But I want to know if anybody in the audience has any questions about the challenges that come with scaling product orgs and some of the decisions. So if you have a question for our product executives here about scaling product organizations and building the right culture, raise your hand and Red will pull you up on stage. But until you ask a question, I get them all to myself. And my next question then is culture. Can you talk about how important instilling the right culture is as you're getting ready to scale and as you're scaling your team? And how much do you allow the culture to change versus how much do you really try to impose a culture that will persist as you grow? And I'm going to turn to Tatiana with that question if you... Sure. So the first thing we have to like say, like, what is culture, <laughs> right? And, you know, culture is really the set of rules, tools, and norms that organize and structure how people do things, right? And how they work and the types of decisions that they will make. And so this is one of the reasons why culture is so critically important to actually getting the right business outcomes and the right product outcomes. So let me, let me give you an example. So I crossed the border between Russia and Mongolia a couple of times, actually. It's a land border and there are two checkpoints. And the first checkpoint is the Russian checkpoint and people line up and they're, it's very quiet. People line up very silently and they wait for their turn and they push their passport under the little, little window and usually old woman behind the window stamps it and you move on. A couple of hundred yards down the road, literally, um, is the Mongolian checkpoint and you open up the door and it's mayhem. People are yelling and screaming and pushing their passports into trying to get them stamped by the workers. And... Here's the interesting thing. They're by definition the same people, right? You can't get to the Mongolian checkpoint if you haven't gone through the Russian checkpoint. And so what has happened, right? The context has changed and people change their behaviors. Human beings are incredibly adaptable and they are incredibly intuitive 
about the social context that they're in. We are very social creatures and we try to please other people that we're around, especially people who are at a higher status than us, right? So we naturally try to mimic, it's called, you know, mimicry. So we try to mimic, we try to do the same things that our role models do within a particular cultural context. And it's really important, therefore, leaders to really understand what they are doing, how they're behaving, and how that is setting the culture. So people always say, well, is it people or is it the people create the culture? you know, or does the culture create basically the people and how they behave? And I actually think, obviously, it's both. But I actually think that culture leads because the right type of culture will attract certain types of people that are prone to particular behaviors. And basically, the people who don't like those behaviors will not be attracted to that culture. So I think that the types of product outcomes and the type of business outcomes that are created are very much reliant on culture. So a quick framework for thinking about what is culture very quickly, it's it's rules, tools, and norms. So the rules are the things that are the top-down business processes, business practices. They are the rules about who do you report to, how other people report to, right? All those sort of formal things that are happening. The next thing is tools, right? What are the types of tools that you're supposed to use? Obviously, a company that uses Slack a lot is going to have a, a different type of culture where than when everybody is expected to call each other or have face-to-face meetings and conversations, right? So the types of tools that you use is also very um, important for culture. But the most important one is the norms, and especially the norms that are role modeled by the leaders in the organization. And those norms are often, you know, not very closely examined. Um, It's hard to examine them. Oftentimes, leaders don't really kind of care to (laughs) look at their own behaviors and the norms that they're setting. But it is really, really critically important to understand what kinds of norms are being set, especially at the top. And so I do think that as we think about, you know, our different products and how they're built, it might be interesting to go back to how were the leaders, what were their behaviors like, how did they norm, right, their organizational cultures, and then what kinds of products maybe came out of those cultures as a result. All right. Excellent framing on how to think about culture and how we can influence it. Vishal, what are your thoughts on how to instill the culture that will help your team as it scales? Great frameworks, Tatiana. I was loved hearing about rules, tools, and norms. One of the best definitions I've heard about culture is a simple one that says culture is something you do when no one's looking. And I 100%, 100% agree that in as you're scaling teams, culture is probably the most important aspect of it. Um, and especially in these, um, like more trying, especially in these COVID times when we are not even physically close to each other. I haven't actually seen it being done as well as I've seen here at Remitly in the past few months. I'll tell you a few things that Matt, Matt Oppenheimer, who's our CEO, does so effectively in instilling culture uh, across the company. Like we, it's a, it's an ex, we are an extremely mission-oriented company and that every single meeting that we have will start with what is the mission of the company, what is the vision of the company. And every decision we are making is very, very aligned. Like we always talk about the mission. And it's not just talking. I think it's about making decisions that are based on that. And it, it really flows from the top. Even now, for example, Matt will do every new hire orientation that's there. Matt, our CEO, will be doing it in person and spending two hours talking about the culture, the vision, mission of the company. 
uh, making sure he's answering questions. Every single meeting ends with a customer quote to emphasize customer centricity. We talk about our values in every discussion we have, even informal discussions, talking about how somebody had empathetic leadership. And that's one of our values. How somebody showed aiming for stars, which is one of our values. So it's really honing down on what your mission, what your values are, and then making all your decisions, making all your conversations centered around those. And it requires a real concentrated effort to do that. And the companies who do that really It shows in their products and how they succeed. I have a follow-up question. And this one is beyond the the culture piece, just on the individual level for a PM. So I'm thinking about individual PMs here in this room who have maybe gone through scaling or are going through that kind of organizational shift and change. And there is sometimes a challenge with that and a struggle. And it has both a mindset element and a skills element to it, I imagine. So I'm curious about how you have mentored other PMs in the past, people maybe who have reported to you or you're in your org, as they have gone through this kind of environment. Scaling, I think, is one of those, it can be a traumatic <laughs> experience for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I often do talk to people who are really upset around reorgs, right? Or getting a new boss or having to switch bosses or things like that. And they feel like they're, you know, powerless or like their world is going to be disrupted. And what I would say is just that an organization is not a fixed thing. It is very much, again, the organizational design is meant to solve a particular problem. And, you know, the leaders have identified the problem. And can you have empathy for the problem that a particular, you know, change within the organization is meant to solve. So, you know, if you can have empathy for the problem and start to look at what is the problem that we're trying to solve, right, that can get you out of the emotional state of what does this mean for me and why am I changing teams or, you know, why do I have a new boss or, you know, these types of things. Because again, as we talked about, organizations really do need to change as they scale and change is really hard for a lot of people. And I think gaining empathy for the need for change is, is really critically important. And having someone who is an advisor or a mentor or a coach, or even talking to your boss, right, about why is this happening and getting a greater perspective on the problem can really help. All right. Thank you, Sumeya, for asking a question. And now speaking of questions, Red, my co-host and a founding advisory board member for the Product Management Center at the University of Washington. He is the reason we are here and he does anything he can to help you as product managers or aspiring product managers, and he deserves a chance to shine. So, Red, give your plea uh, so that you could be more involved in today's show, which always embarrasses you when I say that. Yeah, it, it isn't about me, man. This is about the people out there in the community. So, yes, if you are someone who would like to ask a question at this point and dig deeper with the people on stage, please raise your hand. Down at the bottom of your screen There's a little high five on top of a notebook. That is not someone remitting a payment to a family or friend overseas. That was my pun of the day. But no, that is a way of getting on stage. So if you're <laughs> if you're interested in asking a question, I got Sumea. Yes. Or if you have a question and you're just you know shy, go ahead and position it in Slack and we'll ask it on your behalf. So with that in mind, there's only two rules. One, have a photo of yourself, please. And two, if your profile has anything to do with life coaching or I don't know, being a dentist, I don't think this is a relevant topic for you as far as scaling product management. 
but I'm happy to recommend other rooms for you. Dude, so I'm seeing the hand You don't know. In. There could be some really product-focused dentists scaling their organization. You don't know, Red. You just well, don't know. No, I just got you to make a pun because you just said they're dentists scaling people. That's oh, right. <laughs> that's what we bring to the, <laughs> to the product management community. Thank uh, you. You've got Thank hands up, Red, so just remind them that it's recorded. Absolutely. So with that in mind, Susan... Welcome to the stage. As we're talking about go-to-market strategies, it looks like in your profile, I would love to hear what your question is. The stage is absolutely yours. And remember, the little mic button is how you unmute yourself. Well, thank What's you for reminding me about scaling my teeth. That's very helpful uh, vocabulary word for today again. Anyway, thank you guys for the opportunity. I um, spent most of my career working with product managers and bringing things to market and came to the conclusion that most people really were uncomfortable talking about risk early enough in the conversations. And uh, so what my question is, is how have you found that product introduction or new product introduction processes need to evolve as a company changes, as the environment changes? What do you think the skills are that are important to build if if you're bringing products to market? And what is this hesitancy to talk about risk like it's failure when it's a reality. Yeah, I really think it starts from the top. I have to say that, you know, if you're in a a startup, if you have investors, it's really important to understand what the appetite for risk is from the investors, because likely the CEO is having some conversations with the board, right, around where the investment is and how the, you know, how risky the approach is that the company is taking to build a new product, go after a new market, those types of things. So it really, really starts from the top, from the board to the CEO, you know, the appetite for risk really flows (laughs) top down. I have worked with a lot of people, um, especially in my role at IDEO for seven and a half years, where you have people who are really hungry, have amazing ideas, really hungry to take some risks and try to bring new ideas and new products to market. And it honestly doesn't matter how smart or brilliant or amazing you are if you're, you know, further down in the organization, if you don't have support from the top and the leadership doesn't support risk taking, there's really not much you can do. And I mean, when I worked at Amazon, this was one of the amazing things at Amazon, right? Jeff Bezos says to everybody in the organization that his innovation success rate is about 30%. <laughs> right? For new product introductions. And he's like, and I think I'm one of the best in the world. So if the best VCs in the world, you know, have a 10% success rate and Jeff Bezos has a 30% success rate, right? We need to have leaders at the board level, at the CEO level who understand, right? That, you know, what smart risk taking looks like and can have really, you know, supportive conversations to bring in the right KPIs at the right times, right? You don't have a revenue KPI for a brand new product, you know, in the first year. Like that just doesn't make any sense, right? You're focused on learning. You're focused on understanding whether you have traction. You're focused on understanding the market. You're focused on building the right product experience with design partners, right? And those KPIs should be good enough, right? And really the biggest piece of this is really teaching the leadership, the board and the CEO how to evaluate product innovation, and especially risk that product innovation always carries with it. Mm-hmm. Can you share any like best practices that you think we should be thinking about? Because I, that is, in fact, what I think people are shy to talk about risk. And in, in an environment where people know there's issues but can't talk about it, you end up with this, you know, it's going to be great, no problem, 
attitude and then things just tank. And I feel like being facilitating a conversation about risk openly actually will calm people down and they're more agile when things come up. So, so again, I think it's always top down. Like I would not advise people bottoms up to have risk discussions if your leaders are not ready for them. <laughs> Honestly, a lot of leaders are not ready, right, to actually openly talk about risks and actually talk about risks that are significant ones. But from the top down, when I was at IDEO, we created what was called a leadership learning layer. And for every large innovation uh, transformation that we did with a company, we necessitated that the company actually buy this leadership learning layer engagement as well. And that leadership learning engagement consisted of conversations with the CEO and the C-suite and sometimes the board around how do their metrics need to change? How do their board conversations need to change, right? I remember working with a CEO where we went in and we literally gave him, we listened to a whole bunch of like the feedback conversations that he had with new product development teams. And his questions were like, when do you think this will break even? How much money do you think we're going to lose on this? And we literally gave him like a sheet that said like, from these questions to these questions, right? And the from was like, what's the ROI going to be on this? When are we going to break even? Like those types of questions. We're like, don't say those things. We want you to ask these types of things. How many customers did you speak to? Like, what were the main learnings that you're getting? What are the things that our competitors are not doing that you think, you know, are real blind spots in the market? Where do you think this world will be? And where do you think you know, the customers will be a year from now, right? Ask those types of questions instead of the other types of questions. And then you can actually have a true conversation around, are you making the right bets? What kind of assumptions go into the bets that you're making? And that actually starts to surface really smart risk-based conversations, right? Because Anytime you're making a bet that your product will be successful, especially if it will be you're making a, a bet that your product will be successful in a new market, which is something that you know we're doing right now at Pendo, you are making assumptions about what the future state of the world will be and what customers will want in the future. So you have to ask really smart questions that, that get those assumptions out on the table so you can examine the assumptions in order to assess how much risk you're taking on. Tatiana, I want to draw out some nuance. When we talk about the top-down approach, I think a lot of times, you know, maybe gives the impression that unless the leadership does something about, let's say, the, the, the risk appetite piece, then teams can't do anything about it. And that's something I actually had to learn to not completely adopt or believe in based on research done by Dr. Nicole Forsgren and Jess Humble in their DORA report, the annual one that they have been doing for the past, I think, almost decade at this point in looking at high-performing technology and DevOps organizations and how they were able to transform. And what they've seen is that there are organizations that have been able to become generative have psychological safety, take on risks, even without the top-down support. And they did that by starting that work within their pods, within their product teams, and then showing success and then driving it through the rest of the organization. So we probably believe the same thing, but I just wanted to draw that nuance out to not let other people on the ground feel helpless if they don't have that top support yet. Yeah, I think that's a good call out, Sumeya. I think like with process innovation, that's certainly possible to start small and do a lot of 
take some risks in terms of how you're working. I guess I thought Susan's question, and correct me if I'm wrong, Susan, was more about like big product innovation. Well, what's and- interesting thing, it's, it's culture. You talked earlier about culture. And at the end of the right. day, you're shaping an organization where it's okay to talk about things not going right, as well as it is to talk about things all for one, one for all, we're going to make it perfect. And it's interesting that you're right, in top-down scenarios where often the leaders don't want to hear bad news. They want to hear anything but this darn thing that I put all this money in is going to be great. And in fact, I've been in plenty of product launches where we knew early on that we were going to stall. We were, not going to ha- we were working on the wrong customers. We were going to have a real delay in the revenue streams, but it wasn't okay to talk about it. And so... I guess the question is, if you're going to build a culture of innovation, you almost have to build innovation and risk conversations. And, you know, there's, you know, you talk about thinking in bets and the whole um, Annie Duke's great book about thinking in bets is wonderful because it says that risk, there's an 80-20 likelihood something's going to happen. When the 20 plays out, it's because that's the 20. And it's not like that's failure. But we tend to think of that as failure. So anyway, I love both your points because I think at the end of the day, Yes, you can start creating conversations about risks that are safe, but it is over time a cultural decision to what kind of innovation and safety do you want to have for a reality where uncertainty is the norm. A quick question on this, actually, because I saw Vishal came off mute, but I, I wanted to see if this makes sense because there's a lot of people in the room who are considering switching careers. We're at the season now where you're looking at 2022. Vishal, you came into an environment where there was a previous culture. I think there was like Jordan Timmerman there and Matt and a whole crew of people. And you came in and you had to make your mark. What was your go-to-market? What was your culture? How are you going to manage up? What was your experience like echoing what Susan's referring to at Remitly? And again, this is just your opinions that are your own, not so much reflective of what Remitly might have asked of you. Uh, I'm trying to be somewhat PC here, Vishal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm three months in, so very early days, but I can talk about my experience. I, I do like violently agree with Tatiana on the fact like, at higher level, like the risk appetite really comes from the top uh, in many ways. Uh, however, like one thing I'll add is area where I've been successful in the past has been when you, you when you have a large enough team, you can take a portfolio approach. Even if there is a less lower risk appetite, and I've been in situations there was lower risk appetite, you can manage it in a way that you have the portfolio that you've created where you can meet the needs for what is required of you from a in some of a, in a conservative environment and then figure out with how you can creatively build out a smaller part of your product portfolio that where you can take more risks so it is definitely harder and you have to swim a little bit more upstream be, be more creative it's way easier when that is something that is expected of you to do and that's what your uh, organization wants you to do. However, I think, and, and again, as I said, I think at a large, when you have scaled up to a place where you can create that portfolio approach, you are able to create those pockets of innovation, take more risks while meeting overall needs that your your conservative top-down leadership might have of you. All right. Thank you, Susan, for asking the question. Thank you, Vishal, Tatiana, and Sumeya, all for chiming in on risk and who's responsible for making it acceptable within the culture as you scale. Uh, We had Esther on stage, and I'm so sorry we didn't have a moment to get to your question, but I think we had you before. So I'm really glad to have you back and contributing to the community and hope you'll return next week when we have a conversation about inclusive product design. So 
Red, thanks for managing the stage as always. And now it's time for concluding thoughts. And I'll let Red, I'll let you start this time. You are the reason we're here today because you you said to me long ago, Jeff, the product management center is all about community. You've got to be where the community is. You connected me with Sumeya, who's just amazing, amazingly generous with her time and insight. And every week we've been here all because of you, Red. I'm, I'm turning your face red. If this was a video chat, I'm sure you're blushing. Um, but what are your concluding thoughts today? You know, I would say what I'm hearing is, you know, it's not easy when top down, people ultimately want you to follow their vision, the way they've done things. But as product managers, you're here to service the customer. And at the end of the day, if you're listening to that customer and if you're bringing the evidence and you're asking those hard questions and bringing that to the table, how could the top down not listen? At least that's what an ideal world will be. So my, my recommendation is if you're facing any of these challenges, Vishal, Sumeya, Tatiana, they were referring to, come and join the Slack group, DM them, follow them, reach out. They are here to help, just like the community is here to help you. And we're here every Tuesday. So you're not alone. And uh, I will end with my favorite one is I've always heard of this term called the hippo, which is the high paid person's opinion. If you as a product manager are making decisions because of a hippo, let me help you out at the zoo by bringing some ammo to the table. So if you're interested in more, (laughs) join our Slack group. And uh, that's it. I'll see y'all next Tuesday. What's Back the the ammo? What what are you talking about? The zoo part? I got got you on the hippo and don't listen, but well, I didn't get gotta, what you're supposed you to do. You got to tranquilize the hippo. If you're okay. <laughs> telling you to take a product direction that is in contradiction to your customer, you got to tell your CEO to take a nap. Wow. All right. Can I just quickly build on Red's point Please here? Do. I love his analogy. And yeah, the ammo. The only ammo that I've seen work is great data. Right. So. The hippo's opinion is always going to trump anybody's opinion, right? Like <laughs> that is, that's how status and, and organizations work. But if you bring data and if we bring a lot of it, both qualitative and quantitative data, it's often hard for leaders to not listen and not change their minds. So the data is the tranquilizer to put the hippo to sleep. Well, it's the <laughs> ammo against the opinions of the hippo, I think is more of the metaphorical sort of conclusion here. Okay. I love it. And uh, thank you for bringing that point, taking it full circle from just being at the zoo to actually dealing with data and reason to make sure you get the best decisions for your customer. Sumeya, it was your idea to invite Tatiana and Vishal today. We didn't hear from you as much, as much as I usually like to. So any concluding thoughts? Well, this was an awesome conversation. I love the back and forth we just had. That was awesome. I wanted to do even more of it and just learned a lot. I think what's probably everyone here in the room understood and heard is that culture and I think a, a large element of emotional intelligence play a big role in adjusting and doing well as an individual contributor or as a PM through scaling pains. I think there is a lot of strategy and thinking and framing and frameworking and computation that goes into the work that leaders do as they try to scale their organizations. And as individual contributors, asking the questions, trying to understand how they came up with those decisions is one of the best things you can do if you are lucky to go through through that process. Because I don't think everyone actually gets to do it. But if you do, take advantage of it. 
All right. Thank you, Sumeya. And I don't normally chime in with concluding thoughts about the specific topic, but one thing I do want to reiterate is go back, rewind, listen to this, uh, How to Succeed in Product Management, the recording on the podcast. Listen to all the elements of the culture that Tatiana and Vishal had talked about and really think through how you could do this with an inclusion mindset. Because, you know, the old days, you know, people would talk about, oh, I, I find the right people by who I would enjoy having a beer with or who I would enjoy going to a sporting event with. And we see that some of the ways to think about culture are risk being exclusive and kind of reinforcing inequities that exist. And when we reinforce these inequities, we're not bringing in the best perspectives and we're not listening to the best perspectives that will service the customer and the business. So really go back and listen to kind of the key elements of a culture and notice that having a beer with with somebody is not a part of the culture. And that could be kind of an exclusionary way to look at culture. But instead, think about what was it? Norms, tools, processes, and I'm missing one more. Rules, norms, and tools. Rules, norms, and tools. Excellent. Thank you. Vishal, do you have any concluding thoughts today? Yeah, I learned a lot. This is great. Thanks for the inviting me over here. And this is like, I, I learn a lot through just these conversations. So appreciate it. And then Katiana, you were responding to Red. Did you have any concluding thoughts or any takeaways you want to leave the audience with today? Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed everybody's comments. I wish we had a little bit more time to debate. Actually, I think we had potentially some fun debate topics. I think that, like, again, if people build products, right, they don't build themselves. And the people are encircled within a corporate culture, right, which allows them, creates the conditions of what is possible to think and create. And so if you're not designing culture, if you're not thinking about designing your culture as hard as you're thinking about designing your product, you're probably not going to design a very good product. All right. Excellent. Words of thoughts. And Vishal, I'm going to put you on the spot one more time because your concluding thoughts were how much you enjoyed this conversation, which I (laughs) enjoyed as well. Want to do it again. But are there any one or two bullet points that you hope to leave the audience with that you hope that they remember that sticks with them? Yeah, I would say going back to the core topic was how, how to scale product teams. I would say focus on getting the right people, focus on building trust between them, have a clear vision and purpose, and then create org structure with the right success metrics. Get out of the way. Those are the five things I would want you to think about. All right. So this conversation was full of takeaways. It was full of frameworks and it was almost full of drama. We had a little bit of disagreement, which is healthy and pushes conversations forward. And I hope we could do this again. I hope we can maybe have this crew back dive into to one of these topics. But I want to thank Vishal and Tatiana for joining us today. Thanks, Sumeya, for being here as always. And then Red for really making this podcast possible. We are here every week, Tuesdays at 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific time, with the sole purpose of enriching the lives of diverse product managers. Red and his company, Aptemptive, have helped us turn this into a podcast so that if you can't make it a Tuesday from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m., you could download on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, whatever you listen to. But the Product Management Center at the University of Washington, it is not just for our degree program students, our MBAs, our undergraduates, and our specialty masters. It's for everyone. We are leveraging the interdisciplinary faculty that we have. We're leveraging the contacts we have here in Seattle to some fantastic product leaders and through our alumni network. And we're leveraging these assets to try to help everyone get better at product management. We want to see a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. And we need your help to do so. So reach out to me on LinkedIn, add a note with your connection request. If you want to volunteer to help us or if we could direct you to some resources, or connect with Red and he can get you into the Product Management Center Slack channel. And in closing, we have, I just want to quickly say, 
We are now accepting applications for the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, which has a goal to enable 100 early career professionals from historically marginalized communities to land their first product management role. So if you think that your voice is underrepresented in product management and you want to help us help the world by developing innovations that are inclusive to diverse audiences, uh, get your application in now because we're reviewing the first 200 applicants and we are almost at that cap as we're going to work hard to help 100 early career professionals from historically marginalized communities get their first PM role. And if you are not an applicant, but a product manager who wants to help us in that goal, again, reach out to me on LinkedIn, connect with me. We have lots of space for volunteers and we're just excited to help make, again, a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. So thank you all for joining us today. And I hope to see you, hear you next week, Tuesday at 4 p.m. on how to succeed in product management. Thanks, Vishal, Sumeya, Red, Tatiana. That is all. You can now talk about hippos or do whatever. The recording is over. <laughs> you could really let the blood out here if you want to keep fighting, or you can say goodnight. No, I wanted, I wanted to uh, send a letter of love and appreciation. No bloodletting here. Uh, I think the book, Tatiana, you mentioned earlier, the Bob Sutton one, I love it. He also did an interview with the Entrepreneurship mm. Corner, the Stanford one recently, I love. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, there are some really good, you know, books and, and articles and, and things around this topic. And and one thing about disagreement, right, is friction actually creates a lot of innovation, right? There's uh, learning how to debate, learning how to argue. I, I think Susan brought up the thing about risk, right? I mean, a lot of that is being comfortable in uncomfortable situations and being comfortable in disagreeing. Um, and I do think that that's, you know, Jeff, I don't know, like maybe there should be a course on you know, disagreement Absolutely. You know, in your, in your program. Cause I think that that's, you know, the art of disagreement. Cause I think that's a, that's an art that a lot of us have, uh, have forgotten in tech. Well, yes. And we're going to bring some more disagreement back here one of these days. So <laughs> <laughs> Jeff tries to, uh, I, this is why I think in the Slack channel I wrote, I disagree because uh, Jeff always tries to find situations where there's a little bit of disagreement and add spice to the conversation. But also Jeff knows that one of the things I constantly say about my teams is if we go a few weeks without hearing any, you know, idea conflict between the the different members about how to do something or execute or, you know, just brainstorming, then it means the team is not healthy and we need to do something about it. So completely agree there. Um, Jeff, did you, uh, do you want to start the second show now? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think Vishal's got some kids there that'll probably be uh, come over to my house and kill me if I uh, keep their father away from him too much longer. But uh, you are welcome, everybody, to keep the show running (laughs) for as long as you want. But no, I think it's time to end. Say goodnight. And thank you, Sumeya. I love doing the show with you and Red. Awesome work. Uh, This is fun. And thanks, everybody, for being here. We'll see you next week.